Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cross Examination, a podcast for curious Christians confronting complicated questions. My name is Kale Prindle. Thank you so much for being here, everybody, for part three of this three-part series that I'm calling Counting on Christians in a Crisis, which is basically an exploration of why doesn't more of the white American Christian church stand up to injustice? Can we count on the majority of Christians in America when something crazy is happening? And the first two parts, which thank you for those of you who listened to those and have gotten back to me and have shared some of your feedback. I really appreciate that. But part one explored mostly that the Christian church throughout its history, though it has sometimes been in the spot of being persecuted, has also been in a spot where it is often in a lot of power, and it doesn't always acknowledge its own power. Instead, when we tell the narrative of ourselves, we often still talk about ourselves like we are the ones who are under attack. In part two, I talked about some of the things that the white American Christian church has kind of been obsessed with, and some of that is its own image, its own service, its own way of life. And because it fears that more people creating laws and more people having their voices heard will threaten that stability of Christian life being very normal. And I think that is why so many white American Christians still support uh, a lot of what is being done by our current president and his administration, because he'll swing his fists and say, I support you. And that helps us feel safe, even though um, everything else about the man conflicts pretty plainly with a lot of what goes on in a Christian uh, belief system. Well, today, I want to talk about what I'm calling the Great Decommission. And to wrap up this three-part series, I just want to throw out one more reminder, not like anyone's going to need it if they're listening to this right when it comes out, but the whole thing that set this off is we're living in a weird time where for the last two weeks, solid, there have been nonstop protests, which have often uh, turned into more chaotic scenes. There's a lot of talk about police brutality and Black Lives Matter. And basically everybody's social media feed is some bizarre amalgamation of people fighting for the rights of their fellow humans and other people saying that those rights have already been dealt with. So why are you even making a big noise? And, and some people dodging the issue entirely. And I just have a lot to say about it. So I'm not going to do much else in way of an intro. Here we go. Counting on Christians in a crisis. Part three, the Great Decommission. Of course, for all of this to make sense, we have to talk first about what is the Great Commission. If you're not into the church lingo, or if it's been a while, the Great Commission is what is often referred to in Matthew chapter 28. And it's a moment where Jesus tells his disciples to go into all of the world and make disciples of the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded his disciples to do. It is often taken by the church as like, these are our marching orders. This is what we're supposed to be doing all the time 
over the last 2,000 years and continue to do them until Jesus returns and, you know, the world ends. And this is not something I'm going to dig into so much on a big theological spectrum because this is this is something that so many people have done sermons on and written books about, and I do not have a massive amount of theological uh, study or insight to bring to this to be like, oh, that's what the commission is. What's more important is that this is what people point to when they talk about, hey, this is why we're trying to make everybody a Christian. And that's important because in part one of this series, we talked a little bit about the idea of colonization, how Christians throughout history have taken their belief system, and it's often been coupled with a political uh, ideology, and it steamrolls over cultures. We've talked about how we have seen Christianity be used to completely wipe out languages, completely wipe out belief systems, completely change the structure of life for human beings on this planet. And though there are some who would say, yeah, I get that wasn't cool, but now they know Jesus. And I am here to tell you, and what will be the main focus of today's episode, that how you teach people about Jesus will impact whether or not they really know Jesus. Because steamrolling over somebody and telling them this is right and this is true and this is the way to be the better person is not going to introduce the real Jesus to anybody. So let's break down a little bit of what's in Matthew 28 for the, the, decom- the commission and then the decommission. First, before Jesus tells them to go into all the nations, he first acknowledges that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So Jesus is the person in charge. And that is so important because especially as we work through history, we see time and again that, of course, the church is claiming the authority for itself. And every major revolution uh, within a church, every new um turn and twist and and branching off that happens is often based on this idea because as a Christian religion, it's amazing how almost none of us have the same real grasp on what truth is. Like if we're going to go out and uh, spread the gospel, and if we're going to go out there and make disciples of people, and we're going to tell them to obey the things that Jesus told his disciples to obey, we should be agreeing on what those things are. But there's a reason we have literally thousands of denominations, because as we line up all the beliefs, we find out very quickly that we disagree on so many things. Obviously, this makes things complicated. For me, growing up, the complication was simply this. Anybody who was not a Seventh-day Adventist, because I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, anyone outside that church, they are wrong. At least in some way, that was a very clear message to me growing up. Going through the 90s and year after year of satellite-beamed Revelation and Daniel seminars that talked about the end of the world and all this other stuff made it very clear that when it came to ideas about diet, ideas about the state of the dead, ideas about salvation, that anyone who wasn't us was wrong. And that's so important to remember because 
even though when I talk to my students now, it doesn't seem like that's as much the message they're getting, at least not here in Southern California, which is maybe why some people around the world in Adventist churches think that Southern California is messed up. I am encouraged that a lot of my students were like, no, we never got that, that message. Well, praise be, because that's the message I got, which made me not a compassionate person. That is one of the things to remember. Can you count on a Christian in a crisis? Not if they're raised to not be compassionate. I hope I didn't put in too many knots there. Either way, we need to be compassionate people. Otherwise, no, we can't count on them. I was raised in a way that did not build compassion into my being. And that's a major problem. So the split and the disagreement on like, well, what is the ultimate truth? And, and I don't mean down to the nitty gritty, right? It, it had to not just be what's truth. Well, the truth is that people should love God and love their neighbors. The truth is that there's a grace in the universe that makes all of us worthy people. And it goes beyond what we can try to do to make ourselves perfect because nobody is perfect, but we can see each other as perfect through a viewpoint of grace and mercy. But it's amazing how that's not really what seems to, to lead. I'm going to pick just a smidge on my home denomination because uh, as I grew up, I used to do, go door to door selling Adventist books to people. And part of that is people would ask, your Seventh-day Adventist, what is that? How is that different than anything else? And we were kind of armed with like, what to say. And we knew to try to create common grounds. We're like, well, it's Christianity. We believe that Jesus is the son of God and he died. And because he died, that covers over all, all of our sins and salvation is ours. There's some differences between what day we go to church and the state of the dead. Like we were ready to say, here's a few similarities, but we were also very quick to say, here's how we are different. And I'm not trying to say that a church shouldn't take some pride, like this is what we believe and this is why it's important for us and this is what makes us have a deeper connection with other people and a deeper connection with God. I'm all for that. But we need to consider how we have built up our church over the decades and centuries because it is very easy to train up people like I was, people who are not compassionate, people who are ready to shoot somebody else down because they are not correct. That's the church environment I felt like I grew up in. Obviously, this is not the original goal or intent. It's a byproduct. When I am going and we're doing Bible competitions, and people have to like read and study this chapter, but it's in a competitive mode, it's like, boom, I knew my Bible better than you did. What now? And it's like, you're, you get to brag because you know your Bible better. Well, we want people to know their Bibles better, but it creates a weird scenario. Like I have told people who I think the Antichrist is while I was in college. I boldly, without knowing any of their background at all, would say, this is what the Antichrist means. Not thinking for a second that what I might say might be so offensive, might be so hard to even consider and wrap your brain around that I might just like hurt somebody. Being right when it comes to religion 
is usually not enough for someone to change their mind about something. And we know this is true because right now we're in this weird political moment and being right has almost nothing to do with convincing people. I'm not going to throw out names, but I have seen a lot of people that I have gone to school with and gone to church with over the years, and they are very quick to dismiss the current protests that are going on, to dismiss the current um, revelation that, hey, police are more likely to attack people of color in a more hostile, aggressive manner than they are to uh, attack white people in the same way. Those are facts. That's just numbers and math, and you can show it. It does not matter to some people. We need to realize that about religion as well, that just being right is not something that's going to make someone go, oh, okay, I guess, uh, I guess I'll just change my mind about everything. Now, for some people, I suppose it's worth mentioning, that does get people in your door. It does get them studying. In some cases, it does lead to baptism. I can't completely deny that because that is exactly why my family grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist church. Anyway, my grandma went to like a revival meeting and said, oh, this is new and this is right. And that's when she converted to Adventism. And then my mom was an Adventist and then I am an Adventist, all these things. So I'm not saying it never happens, but I, I believe we are at a point in our history where that model is not sustainable this great commission, we might have to look at it and say, we might need to take this apart. We might need to decommission our current model for today's society. Because again, I can look at what this commission says and I don't have a problem with it, but because we can't agree exactly what it means most of the time, it creates in us a system and a climate of conflict, of battling about who knows the Bible the best way and who does the best research. And I don't think God is supposed to be so complicated that most people cannot understand or have access to his word, his plan, his desire for all of humanity. But if we do look at what Jesus says here, to teach people to obey everything he's commanded, go back to the Gospels, read what Jesus said, and compare it to the American church that you knew and you grew up with. Did the church you grow, grew up in, assuming you grew up in the church, did, did the church you grew up in totally know that somebody was going to make a mistake And they lovingly and supportively helped them through it? Or did they get mean about it? Did they get ready to throw people out? Did you grow up in a church where the people who were not taken care of were put first? Or, as I have seen in a church in the last however many years, or did you grow up in a church that kept honoring the same wealthy people who made the largest donations to your church? Did you grow up in a church where people kind of lowered or erased the boundaries that might put someone in a different like status realm? Is everyone here because we're all people? Or does your church still continue to acknowledge, oh, well, that person's 
uh, a doctor, and this person, their name is just Bob. What are our churches doing? When we look at how Jesus treated people, he broke the rules. He broke what was recognized as the normal way to do things. And yes, it got him in trouble, but somehow we look at that as a lot of churches in America today, and we're not willing to take that risk. And I don't know entirely where to point the finger on this one, because I know a few things. First, I know there are tons of pastors who what their real belief, their real view of God might be somewhat different than a lot of the people in their congregation. There are a lot of pastors that when you talk to them one-on-one and you really see what they're about and what they believe and how they view the world, it is so open and loving and amazing, but they have a church that if that church does not maintain a certain number of people, then those pastors are going to be like not able to support themselves. And I have seen pastors not take a stand for something because they know it's going to cause some kind of backlash. That's a huge problem. So at first I would almost say, hey, church leaders, come on, take a stand. But I also have to acknowledge that for a lot of those church leaders, for them to take a stand from the pulpit and say, these things are not right and we're going to do something about it right now, I know there will be people in that congregation who are like, pastor, keep the politics out of our church. Which of course is silly. Because... Everything is politics, including church. But it's easier to point at leadership because they're leadership. I'm not saying that's easy, but it is something we need to consider. That if leaders are not willing to make that stand, they're going to have a hard time making their churches relevant. They're going to have a hard time allowing people or making it possible for people to count on Christians in a crisis. Now, there are so many pastors I know that are doing their best. They are taking the stand everywhere they can. And I've been watching them on social media and they are taking their hits from the people who disagree with them. I have seen the pastors who are saying Black Lives Matter and they are responded to with All Lives Matter, which just real quick... I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you already know the difference, but just in case, quick, quick rundown again, again, because I know you've heard the argument before, but some people aren't hearing it well enough. And I have a theory. I'll start with the theory. I have a theory that if all lives matter had been spoken first, if that was the original rallying cry, like, hey, there are police officers and they are doing things to citizens of our country uh, in a way that people are dying. And more often than not, they're doing those dangerous things to black Americans. And we need to do something because all lives matter, including black lives. If that had started first, I don't think anyone's going to care that you said all lives matter because if you say all lives matter, if that was first, everyone would say, yes, all lives do matter. So let's help those people out. 
But part of a rhetorical situation is when something is said, Black Lives Matter happened first. And so when you say all, you erase the pain and the frustration and you avoid the problem. And if you can't see that, it's because you're choosing not to see it. And I can say that because I appreciate all of the times that I have seen over the last two weeks, people coming out of the woodwork with example after example after example after example of how this is supposed to work. And I know some people still don't see it. So I understand how some leaders in a church would be like, I don't know if I can go there. If I go there, I'm going to have that one family. Because, I mean, let's be honest. We all know small churches where one family is over half your congregation. And it is hard to stand up for what's right if you make that one family mad and they leave and then all of a sudden your church is basically dead. I know that's hard. But I'm pretty sure the Bible never has, has a moment that says being a Christian is easy. Christians love to talk about how they're the victims. They love to talk about how we have to stand up for what's right. And this is a time where Christians have to stand up for what's right. Even if that family leaves, even if that's going to strain the finances, even if that's going to have people yelling back at you on Facebook, yeah, I heard you say Black Lives Matter. I'm still saying all lives matter. It's annoying and it's frustrating, but that is the fight we're called to do. Because when we look at the life of Christ, he shook things up. He would talk to the people that other people said, we're not talking about them or we're not talking to them or that's an issue we're not going to deal with. How many times did someone come to Jesus and the disciples would have been like, eh, back away. Jesus is busy. Or how many people came to Jesus that according to the Jewish teaching of the time, Jesus should be nowhere near them because of something that was going on with their body, whether that was the leper or the woman who was bleeding for years. Or how about the political act of accepting a Roman centurion into your presence and doing something for him, the true oppressor, and saying, hey, I got you. Jesus took the stand. And yes, he got in trouble. We can't forget that when he went into the temple and threw down tables everywhere and says, y'all messed up and I'm not dealing with it anymore. We have to remember that when that happened, the religious leader said, all right, we're going to kill that guy. When you stand up for what's right, there will be opposition. And Christians, for as much as they have told their own story as being people who are persecuted, if we're going to be persecuted, let it be for something that matters. Here's what I think is the real threat to Christianity moving forward. The real threat to Christianity in America is when people realize that non-Christians are more willing to love and accept them than the Christians are. This is something that's been in my brain for over five years, and it became evident to me during these type of revolutions where you realize all of a sudden, like, oh, there's a problem with the world, but the church wouldn't talk about it. Now, for my specific denomination, especially when I used to live in the Midwest, there is a very clear split between African-American churches, Seventh-day Adventist churches, and white Seventh-day Adventist churches. 
to a point that it is still mind-boggling, but I understand it's a complicated scenario that I'm not going to get into right now. But when Black Lives Matter becomes a thing, and your church never talks about it, but you can look outside, and those heathens, the people who are wrong because they're not like you, the people who who don't have your same beliefs, the ones who are going to go out on a Friday night or, or drink alcohol, to see that those people are more willing to put themselves out there for somebody, to be more willing to go through the work of trying to change the world so someone else can have a better life. When people outside the church are more willing to do that than the people inside the church, your church will die. Same thing is true for all things. A number of years ago, as same-sex marriage got closer and closer to being legalized, of course, every church was trying to figure out, what do we do with this? How do we handle this? And I remember going through the steps myself of where I was in my teenage years and before, where it's like homosexuality equals sin. Done. Apostle Paul says so. Done. Leviticus says so. Done. And then having the conversation after college, when my friends and I had that honest conversation of, hey, what if your sexuality is not a choice? Does that change anything? Because it, finally, when I started to talk to people who had a different view of the world that, were, that was outside the view I grew up with, I realized the implications of that question and I realized that to choose a sexuality that intentionally went against the beliefs of people you love is insane. And then we keep moving forward and, and scholars are re-looking at scripture and saying, well, like, is there, is there a different way to look at this? Maybe, maybe we need to look at things in a different way. And I'm not saying every Christian, obviously not every Christian agrees with that. But what became important is on a larger level, organizationally speaking, the church struggling with knowing what to do at least came forward and said, listen, we're called to love people and that's what we need to do. And I saw some, not all, of the church's of, of Seventh-day Adventist churches say, you know what? We're not going to get on your case about this. You want to come worship? Come worship. We're not here to completely like redo and, and yell. But I know there are many, many, many churches where that wasn't the case. That they are not leading with Jesus calling us to love God and love people. They are leading with obey what I've commanded you and what they believe God, Jesus commanded them was to control the environment of whatever space they're in to make it as much like an American Christian church as they can. We're going to lose that fight. Christian churches cannot survive when we are leading with telling people you're not good enough the way you are. Shout out 
to uh, Michael Halfhill in one of my favorite sermons he did. Because the concept is so simple. He had a message that at its core said, we have a problem because when people join the church, we expect them to behave. Then eventually we expect them to believe. And then we eventually expect them or allow them to belong. And of course, he pointed out that all of that is completely backwards, that the most important thing for a church to do in a community is have everybody feel and know, I belong here. And if people have a sense of belonging, they're going to believe in what drives that community. And then if they know what drives that community and they feel their value being built up in that community, they will behave in accordance with that community. That's what humans do. We want to be a part of something bigger. But the thing is, outside of many Christian churches in America, we are finding more acceptance. We are finding more love. We are finding more people say, I see how you are and you are good enough the way you are. And a lot of Christian churches are not giving that message. This is a scary time, I think. For ch- I think it's been scary for churches for a long time. Because they know. A lot of Christian American white Christian churches have known for a long time that their numbers are going down. Church attendance throughout the decades has been on the decline. Richard Rohr, who I love and is amazing, talks about what happened in the Catholic Church in the 1960s when they had one of their massive meetings and they admitted, you know what? There's Catholic and Protestant, and we've spent centuries saying that we are right, and the Protestants, they don't know what they're talking about. But we have to admit, Protestants, still Christians, Protestants, still children of God, Protestants are still under the grace of Jesus. And Richard Rohr points out, like, that is so hard to maintain your numbers, because people will flock to fundamentalism if they feel like it's safe. You will have a die-hard congregation of people who will lock everything down and say, this is the most important thing in the world. Nothing gets in or out. But that's not a grace-filled church. That's not a church that's going to create disciples. That's a church that's going to create zealots and extremists. So what do we do with it? Can we count on Christians in a crisis? Individual Christians, you already know. If you know someone who's a Christian and you trust them and you know that they love you and they know they will accept you and they're out there doing their best to spread the word of grace and value of all humans, yeah, you probably can. But I know a lot of you also know Christians that as soon as you try to say something like, hey, this is a big problem and it concerns me and it wounds me that this is a, that has not been dealt with. You could also have a Christian who says, well, how much have you really been praying? You need to come to our Bible study. There are some Christians who will make you feel terrible for choices 
in your life when all you need is for them to make a choice in their life to to see you with compassion. We need to rethink the role of churches. If there is to be a great decommission, it is looking at what Jesus says, and we might have to change a lot of what we think about churches. And I know a ton of people who already do this. I know a lot of people who the greatest moment of their week is getting together with friends, just a close-knit group of friends, and they will live life together. And they will love each other and support each other. I know people who every week, they will pool their funds together and donate it to a charity. I know pastors that have quit their pastoral jobs at large churches where they probably could have stayed there for their entire lives and had a pretty sweet and easy pastoral career. But they decided, I can do more meaningful work if I just start doing church from home. It's hard to maintain a large organization. But if our goal is just to maintain the organization and not spread the love and grace and mercy of Christ, then what is even the point? I woke up this morning and I looked at the news and I saw that Minneapolis is is looking at completely restructuring how police work in their city. How else can we do this to help people feel safe, to help people not be victimized and not be assaulted by the people who are there supposed to protect them? And so I think this is a perfect time for all Christians to really look at what they think Christianity is. What are they supposed to be doing for the world? Is your church trying to prepare the world for Jesus? Then they need to know who Jesus is. And like I said at the beginning of this, they don't learn who Jesus is because they understand a 2300-day prophecy. They don't understand who Jesus is when you tell someone, you're wrong because I know the Bible better than you. They don't learn who Jesus is when you say, we have the truth and everybody else is wrong. Because that's not how Jesus worked. If we're trying to make disciples, if we're trying to teach everyone to obey what Jesus commanded, then we need to teach people about the loving, the merciful, and the gracious person who even when he's confronted with, hey, this is a big problem, right? We should kill this woman. He says, yeah, but you know what? Her life matters. We need to look at the guy who was approached by lepers that everyone said was unclean. And he says, these guys' lives matter. We need to look at the guy who told the story of a good Samaritan who came to the aid of a man that every other elite religious leader skipped over and ignored. We need to know the Jesus that tells us 
You need to pick up the people who are beaten down. We need to teach them about the Jesus who told us, like, take them to the inn. Pay for everything that they need because some people need your help. If we behave in this world in those ways, if we truly treat people the way that we think we're supposed to be treating Jesus, instead of treating people like they are not worthy to come in the presence of Jesus, if we can do that, they're going to see something amazing. They're going to see something lovely. They're going to see something to be attracted to and say, this, this is what the kingdom of heaven really is. People recognizing each other, acknowledging each other's lives, acknowledging that each individual person matters for their each individual ways and each have their own individual needs that we can help with. And if we refuse to do that, then what's the point of being a Christian church at all? Thanks again, everybody, for sticking around for this. It's been nice to do these again. It's been a long time. I hope that this starts more conversations. I hope that this is something that speaks to you in a way that that brings you closer to justice, that brings you closer to the ability of standing up and saying, I know what's right and I'm going to stand for it, even if... Some of those weird people in church yell at me, or or even though I got to try to explain to another person why that phrase is not helpful. There's a lot of craziness in the world, and I appreciate you taking the time to have me be a part of that crazy world with you. If you want to chat with me on any of this stuff, uh, I feel at this point you all know where to find me, so I'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much. Farewell, good people.